This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So please uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll read this, and then I want to read two other verses which you don't need to turn to. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, which are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Hallelujah. Revelation 4.11, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were Create it. And over the years as a pastor, uh, I have conducted dozens and dozens of weddings, as you can imagine. And at each and every one of them, almost I think without fail, whether here or somewhere else where I've conducted, I have always stressed this point that from that moment on, that couple are no longer their own. They belong to each other. From that moment on, they lose their singleness, they lose their autonomy, they lose their, I suppose, self-sovereignty. And at that moment, they are joined together as one single person, as it were. Now, notice in these scriptures that we have just read, it reinforces that uh, simple concept that we belong to God that he created us for himself, that even our very bodies and our spirit belongs to him. We are not our own anymore. We have no more longer any autonomy. We have no longer any self-sovereignty, as it were. From that moment on, from the moment you became born again of the Holy Spirit, you belonged exclusively and completely and wholly to the Lord. Amen. And so, from that moment on, the days of your singleness were over. Now, this is a problem concerning bringing people to the cross of Christ. Because natural man doesn't want to think to lose their independence. Natural man feels that I want to run my own life, to rule and reign in my own life. Natural man feels, I do not want to lose my self-sovereignty, my autonomy. I want to be my own person. And just like those enemies of Christ said, we will not have this man to rule over us. And therein lies a problem because when you come to Christ, then you're under new management. You're no longer 
controlled by yourself. In fact, you have given yourself over to the full control of the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least we're supposed to. That's the whole idea. Now, if I was to ask you here this morning, all of you, why did Christ Jesus die on that cross? I suspect that all of us would simply answer that simply by saying this. He died on that cross to forgive me my sins. He died on that cross that I might be forgiven of all of my sins. And that answer is true, but it's only half the truth. It's only half the truth. Because Jesus died for more than just to forgive you your sins. He died for much more than that. Now that was necessary. It was absolutely necessary. But beyond that, then there's much more that he had in mind. There's a, a negative side to the cross and there's a positive side to the cross. Regarding our pardon, our forgiveness from our sins, regarding us being pardoned, then there's a negative side to that. The negative side is, of course, that came at a great price. Jesus had to go to that cross. He had to suffer. He had to bleed. He had to die. He had to go through the horrors of that cross in order for us to be pardoned. That's the negative side of the cross in order to get our sins forgiven. But the positive side of the cross is even much more than that. Now that our sins are forgiven, then there is his pleasure and his purposes in our lives that has got to be played out that Christ wants to fulfill in each and every one of us. The forgiveness of our sins is absolutely vital. That's the first thing that has got to be dealt with for sure. But sometimes we stop at that point as believers and we think, well, that's it. My sins are forgiven. I'm ready for heaven. But no, there's much more than that because we died not just for him to pardon us, but for him to have his pleasure in us and for him to fulfill all of his purposes and plans uh, through us. And so we're not just forgiven so that we can just go on as we used to do in our old way of life. No, we're saved to bring him pleasure and to fulfill all of his purposes. And so his pardon releases us for his purposes. His pardon releases us for his purposes. Once you're pardoned and forgiven, understand today that that's just releasing you to fulfill his purposes. That's the first thing that has to be done, but it's only the beginning. And too many Christians think that's the end of it. We're saved, that's all I've got to think about. No, 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 no. No, you're saved for a purpose. There's a reason for your salvation. There's a higher cause for the cross than just to forgive you your sins. Do we want to submit our whole lives to him? Or do we want to retain our autonomy and our feeling of self-sovereignty uh, that we can live our lives how we want to live our lives? But Jesus wants to be Lord, absolutely. Not just Savior, but he wants to be Lord over every part of our lives. That's what we read in those scriptures. Even our very body and our spirit, our soul, all of it belongs to him. He pray, paid an immense price for that. But he's got reason and purpose for it in order that we may serve him and serve his purposes and give him pleasure. In Romans 14, 7 to 9, here's what it says. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. 
Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again and lived again. Note this, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. See the emphasis Paul puts on our salvation, that he might be Lord. Oftentimes as believers, we put the emphasis on the fact that he might be Savior. He saves us. He forgives us. He cleanses wonderful. Absolutely. But we can't stop there. That he might be Lord. That his purposes and his pleasures may be fulfilled in us and through us for his glory. Titus 2.14. Paul says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That's wonderful. Our sins are forgiven. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Often as preachers, when it comes to the gospel, often we are guilty of presenting this image to the unbeliever. If you come to Christ, you'll be saved, your sins will be forgiven, uh, your problems will be sorted, uh, your life will be wonderful from that point on, and God will bless you in so many ways, and we stop there. But what we should be saying is, when you come to Christ and you receive forgiveness of sins and you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, then, then, and only then, you'll be free to serve the purpose of God for the rest of your life. That's what we should be saying. So that puts an onus on us then after we're saved to understand that Christ has saved us for a reason, for a purpose, and that we might serve him for his glory. And so the picture then unbelievers then may get is, what's in it for me? If I come to Christ, what's in it for me? What will happen to me? What will I get? Whereas we should be making them think, what's in it for him? What will he get out of your life? After all, he's the one who paid the great price for you. He's the one who went to the cross. That's what it cost him everything to get you. So what's in it for him? What will he get out of it? What glory will he receive? What pleasure, what purpose will he have? So Christ saves us, not just for our good, but for his glory. And thank God there is much good that he gives us. Thank God for all the blessings that he bestows upon his children. Wonderful. But it's not just for that, it's for his glory. You see, without the lordship of Christ, the cross simply becomes a means of ridding us of our sins and our guilt, and it's a free pass to heaven. But when we make him Lord, then it goes beyond that. Yes, we're secure. Yes, we have a pass to heaven. Absolutely, sins are forgiven, but it's more than that. There's a service to be done. God is to get the glory. He is to have pleasure in us. And so it's not a case of getting saved and then living however we like from that point on, that we're, we're secure now, we're, we're, we're heaven bound, but we can live whatever way we like. If I can go back to the analogy of marriage, oftentimes one or other of a couple, when they get married, they still want to live as if they're single. And that never works. It's never going to work. Because once you get married, you're no longer single. <laughs> You no longer just think of yourself. And if you do, then you're heading for serious trouble. 
It's the same in salvation. Once we get saved, we belong to him, but we're no longer single, as it were. Now we're joined to him as one in Christ Jesus. And so lordship means ownership. We have become a purchased possession. We belong exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. Note what we said in the very first verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, I'm not sure whether you just caught that or not, so I'll reiterate it. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Not just your sins were bought with a price, and they were a great price. That cost Jesus everything. But you were bought with a price. Do you see what I'm getting at this morning? Salvation is more than just your sins forgiven. Yes, they were bought with a great price, but Paul says you were bought with a price. You, the person, with the purposes of God to be fulfilled. Galatians 2.20, this is why he said about Christ, he loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, Paul had that revelation that once he got saved, there was a purpose of God in it. It wasn't just, well, uh, thank God my sins are forgiven, all that stuff I did against Christians and I did against Christ and the blasphemy, I, I say, all that's forgiven and, and that's wonderful. Thank God I can just have a place in heaven. No, no, he realized that's dealt with. The sin question's dealt with. Now I've got to live for him and give my life completely into his hands. In Mark chapter 14, I want you to turn with me to this here. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, uh, and this is dealing with the, the time that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden. And remember the soldiers came and arrested Jesus. In verse 43 of Mark 14, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Notice what he said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas was acknowledging by saying, Rabbi, that Jesus was a teacher but he was the master the teacher but Judas never ever called Jesus Lord never the disciples called him Lord and Master and John 13 and 13 actually says that Jesus said you call me teacher and Lord and you say well for so I am but Judas never called Jesus Lord because to him he wasn't his Lord. Isn't that interesting? That revealing about Judas that he never ever called Jesus Lord. Here's another thing. All of those disciples 
They never, ever call Jesus, Jesus. Never. They gave him his title. They called him Master, or they called him Lord, but not Jesus. Because titles are important. If I was to meet the Queen of England, I would call her Your Majesty. If I was before a judge in a court of law, I would probably call him Your Honor or Your Worship. If I met a, an official, uh, a government minister, say, I would say to him, Minister. Because that's the title, that's the office that they hold. And so the disciples were very deferential in that. When they spoke to Jesus, they never called him, they never says, Hi, Jesus. They would say, Master, Rabbi, Lord. But Judas, not one time, ever called Jesus Lord. He couldn't, because he didn't recognize him as his Lord. Even though he recognized him as a great teacher, but not as Lord of his life. So how do we see Jesus today? Is he more than just somebody who saved us from our sins? Or is he actually Lord of our lives? Jesus is Lord is probably one of the earliest confessions, Christian confessions. Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul put great emphasis on the recognition that Jesus is Lord. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. See the recognition that the New Testament disciples and apostles and writers put upon the lordship of Jesus. Do we put the same emphasis on his lordship in our lives? Because that's what he expects. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 3, the apostle Paul said, only the Holy, only, it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can call Jesus Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we can't say the words Jesus is Lord. But only by the Holy Spirit, only by the Spirit's revelation, can we understand that Jesus is Lord. Before we get saved, we didn't understand that Jesus was Lord. And it's only after we get saved, and hopefully increasingly so after we're saved, that the Holy Spirit reveals to us the Lordship of Jesus that he wants to be complete control of all of our lives. Every moment of every day, he wants to be Lord of our lives. And I think that's the reason why there's so many weak and ineffectual, carnal, half-hearted believers today. Because they're saved, but they're not submitted. They're forgiven, but they're not surrendered. They're converted, but they're not consecrated. They've stopped at the sins forgiven. 
happy to be there. And thank God for that. And we rejoice that we're saved. Wonderful. But we need to move on. That's just the door opener. You're just through the threshold. Now you need to move on and make Jesus Lord of your life. That's why Jesus said to even his disciples, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? You see, when it comes to his lordship, then it obviously means obedience. And that's the, that's the fight and the struggle within us as believers because our flesh doesn't want to surrender. Sure, it doesn't. Our human nature doesn't want to surrender to the lordship of Christ. We want to do it our way. We want to have everything our way. Even humanly, we want everything our way, do we not? And as soon as somebody challenges our way, then the hackles rise, don't they? Humanly speaking. But when it comes to Christ, he demands that he is Lord of our lives. He is Lord from heaven. He is the Lord from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Imagine the Lord from heaven came to this earth. The Lord of glory became the despised one, the rejected one. What condescension, what humility, what grace, what love, what humbling of himself. And even though he was a king of angels, yet he rode in Jerusalem riding on a borrowed donkey. <laughs> what humility is in Christ. And yet he is the Lord of heaven. And he came from heaven to this earth to humble himself that we might be saved, that we might be washed in the blood of the Lamb. But not just that our sins would be forgiven, but then he could take up his lordship in our lives. He could enthrone himself in us. He is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 54 and 5. He's the Lord of the armies. The Lord of the hosts, angelic hosts, obey his command. Sabaoth, James calls him. Sabaoth, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the host. You remember in Matthew, you remember how that, you remember how Peter in the garden, when they came to the rest, and Peter took out his sword, and they slashed and cut the ear of one of those servants. Jesus says, put away your sword. Do you not know that I could ask the Father, and he would send 12 legions of angels? By the way, that's about 70,000 angels. Do you not know that just a quick prayer and we would be surrounded by the hosts of heavens because he's the king of angels? But he says, no, put away your sword. It's not time for that. He's the Lord of the hosts. Even the very hosts of hell tremble at his name. <laughs> tremble at his name. We beseech you, torment us not. Send us not out into the deep, the demon said. The demon said, are you coming to torment us before the time? They knew there was a time, but they thought their time was up. 
It had come earlier than they thought, they thought. How you come to tremendous before the time? So even the very hosts of hell tremble at the name, such as the power in his name that he possesses. He is the Lord of the hosts. He's the Lord of the hosts of the heavens. The sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies, they set their courses by his omnipotent power. He counts the stars. He calls them all by name, the Bible says. All of creation, the whole universe, is in his control. That's the one that we're talking about. He wants to be Lord of our lives today. He is Lord both of the dead and of the living. Romans 14 and 9. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. Right now there's about 8 billion people almost on the face of the earth. A hundred years ago, there was other billions who were alive then, but have since died. A hundred years before that, there was billions more who were alive and who has died. So there are untold billions and billions and billions of dead. And Jesus is Lord, both of the living and of the dead, it says. Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. He is Lord over their final habitation. I'm trying to get through to you this morning, church, the Lordship of Christ. It's a big thing, bigger than we can imagine. And he wants that to be over our lives. In Revelation 14, 13, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now again, as you can imagine, being a pastor for decades, I have conducted the funerals of, of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people of all ages. And I know what it's like to stand at the grave of the saints of God. And even though there's a natural sorrow, but there is a relief and a joy because we know where they have gone to. But I have also stood at many graves of unbelievers where there was no joy and there was no assurance in their lives and for some who had never any time for God ever and it's a different thing when you stand at that grave than the grave of a believer those who die in the Lord and those who die outside of Christ there's a world of difference there's an eternity of difference and I know which ones I would rather stand at Revelation 20. What about those who 
don't die in the Lord. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. When it says the dead, this is speaking of the unsaved dead. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those are scary, scary verses, aren't they? But they're biblical, they're truth. Because Jesus is the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. And he holds the key to their habitation. No one else. Jesus is the Lord of glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me just read this. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord, what a title, the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of all glory. I, I love the first few verses of Psalm 19 where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and his firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. All of heaven declares the glory of the Lord. Remember the song we sang? All heaven declares the glory of the risen Lord. And it actually does. Even the very stars on their courses declare the glory of God for those who want to see it. Hallelujah. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Do you know today that we, us, human beings. We're the only creatures in all of God's great creation that is in rebellion against the Creator. We're the only ones. All heaven declares the glory of God, but we rebel against it. That's what sin has done to humanity. And we see it even increasingly daily where we live. 
I love this person, a few verses in Revelation 21, verse 22 to 26. But I saw, this is talking about the new Jerusalem, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and their honor into it. Well, whenever the new Jerusalem, that great, huge city of God, comes down from heaven upon the earth, according to Revelation, and the kings of the earth will come and pay homage to the king of kings and lord of lords, when that happens, there will be need no light in there. Because the Lamb, the radiation of the Lamb will lighten that. His effulgent light will fill all of the new Jerusalem. That's the glory of the Lord. And it fills the whole place. Even Moses, when he went up to receive the Ten Commandments, when he came down, such was the glory of God shining upon him. He had to put a veil on his face. What's it going to be like in that place? when the light of the Lord Jesus Christ fills it completely. No need of the sun, no need of the moon. Just the light of Christ will fill it. We're almost finished. He is the Lord of the harvest. Matthew 9, 38 tells us that. The world is the field and we are the laborers. Pray that the Lord would send forth laborers into his harvest field. So he equips us for harvest. He endows each of us with grace and gifts. One sows, one waters, but the Lord gives the increase because he's the Lord of the harvest. So you may be a sower, you may be a water, you may be one who in the first instance gives a witness or a testimony, or you may come along after somebody else has done that, and you may be the encourager, you may be the one who invites somebody to church, you may be the one who stops somebody in the street, who sits beside somebody in a bus, one sows, one waters, but at the end of it, it's God who gives the increase. There's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that moves upon that heart and brings that person to Christ. He is the Lord of the whole earth. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of all lords. Last verses. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the new Jerusalem comes down and the kings of the earth come to pay homage, every single person will bow the knee to Jesus. Every single tongue will confess, Jesus, you are Lord. There'll be no exceptions. What joy, what blessing it is to the master whenever we say and truly mean it, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I surrender my autonomy, my independence, my singleness, my feeling of self-sovereignty. I surrender all of that to you. From this moment on, you are my Lord. So therefore, I put no limitations upon what you want 
or what you want me to do, where you want me to go, because you are Lord. I am under new management. I am not my own anymore. And whenever you do that, now it's, it's a challenge to do that. It's a challenge. And sometimes we're scared to do that. But if you understand that God's plans for you are for good, not for evil, to give you hope in the future, if you understand that his plans for you are better than you could ever imagine, better than you could ever have plans for you, then it's easier to surrender yourself to him and trust him every day to be the Lord of your life, whether that's in your home, whether that's in your education, whether that's in your business or your job or whatever that may be, he is Lord over all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we understand this morning that you do want to be Lord in my life, in these lives. Help us, Lord, to be courageous, to take a step of faith, a step of trust, and step into God's great plans for our lives. Without equivocation, holding nothing back, saying, Lord Jesus, be Lord. I'm going to trust you and believe in you and walk with you. And I put my life into your hands from this moment forward. Believing that you love me, that your plans for me are good. And that, Lord, you will lead me from this moment. And so I surrender to you today and say, thank you, Lord Jesus for every mercy you've shown me, for every plan and purpose you've got for my life. Help me not to miss any of it because of I want to do it my way. Help us, Lord, to do it your way and in your time. So we give you our all today in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.